would you rather? How many of kids, how many of you kids have played that game? Would you rather? Yeah. Would you rather, right? So it's a simple game. Uh, it can be serious or it can be silly. Uh, you can ask questions like, would you rather vacation at the beach or explore a city you've never visited? Uh, would you rather have the power to fly or to be invisible? Would you rather go to a Taylor Swift concert or a World Cup final? <laughs> this morning, I have another would you rather question. Would you rather have a religious experience where you spend time with Jesus physically or read your Bible? Which would you choose? Uh, Before you choose, let's ask someone who did spend a lot of time with Jesus. Let's ask the Apostle Peter who spent lots of time with Jesus. We read in 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter is referencing when he, James, and John were up on a mountain with Jesus, and in a glorious moment, the divinity of Jesus was revealed. His face radiated glory, and they saw it with their own physical eyes and with their own physical ears. They heard God the Father's voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Peter literally had a mountaintop experience. And if we ask Peter, Peter, would you rather relive that experience? Or would you rather read the Bible's account of it? Surely Peter would say, man, I'd love to go back there on that mountain. I would love to go back and relive that experience. Let's keep reading. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we are with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. What? Did Peter really just say that Scripture is more sure, more profitable Then seeing Jesus with his own physical eyes and hearing God's voice with his own physical ears? Did Peter really say that right now having access to reading the Bible is more sure than the greatest of religious experiences? Did Peter really just say that? I think he did. And what about Jesus? If Jesus, if we were to ask Jesus, Jesus, would you rather prove the necessity of your death and your resurrection from the dead to your disciples? Would you rather appear to them suddenly with a loud bang saying, I'm here, I'm back? Or would you rather read the Bible with them? What would Jesus say? Well, we don't have to guess. We have his answer in Luke chapter 24. 
There's some disciples walking on the road to a village named Emmaus. They're sad because Jesus is crucified. The one they put their hope in is now dead. And they're walking, and the resurrected Christ comes up to them, and he asks them, why are you sad? Are you the, are you, uh, Jesus asks why you're sad, and they respond, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And Jesus responds, I love it. what things? Like, what are you talking about? And he said to them, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Now, if I'm Jesus, I just say, it's okay, I'm right here. I'm I'm right here. I'm with you. I died, but I'm back from the dead. Don't be sad anymore. But that's not what Jesus does. What does he do? Look at verse 25. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus comes back from the dead and does a Bible study. That's crazy. Here we get an astounding view of what Jesus thinks about the Bible. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. I want to ask and answer this question. What does Jesus believe about the Bible? This question question matters for every one of you here. This question is important for you, my Christian brothers and sisters. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our authority. However Jesus views and treats scripture should be how we view and treat scripture. Children. Yes, it's Family Worship Sunday. You're in here. You're stuck with me all morning. And this question is important for you. Your mommy and daddy might tell you you need to read the Bible and pay attention. But more important, you need to ask, what does Jesus say about the Bible? Yeah, mommy and daddy are important, but Jesus is more important. And for you, my non-Christian friend, my guess is you probably value Jesus at some level. And you're maybe investigating Christianity. And I think one of the best places to start is to start with Jesus and what he says about the Bible. And so no matter where you are, who you are, this question is important for you. And so that's what we'll consider this morning. And before we jump in, let me offer this little bit of a disclaimer. So uh, our typical way we preach here at Restoration Church, as you know, is we, we typically go through books of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. All right, that's why we just spent seven months, yes, seven months in the books of First and Second Kings. And when we're not in one book, we try to pick one particular passage to go through. How we believe this, this approach to preaching is best for the health of the church. Why? Because that lets the scripture set the agenda and not us. It makes sure we don't avoid hard issues. It makes sure we try to model faithful Bible study and and keep the verses in context. And so that type of preaching should be the main diet for the health of a church. It's the meat and potatoes, the, the fruits and the vegetables. But dessert is good every once in a while, right? Right? Sure, if all we ate was ice cream and munched on Twinkies, we'd be malnourished. But it's good every once in a while. And so this morning's sermon is a bit more like dessert. 
It's more topical and thematic meditation than anything else. Yes, it contains exposition, but we'll have a couple of passages and we'll be in several passages. So those are listed in the bulletin for you. A lot of them will be on the screen. Uh, Our two anchor passages will be Matthew chapter 5 and Luke 24. You can kind of bookmark those in your Bible, but we'll be in lots of other places as well. Okay. What does Jesus believe about the Bible? I think one way Jesus might answer that is this. The Bible is God's word about me. The Bible is God's word about me, about Jesus. I'm just going to walk through that answer. Let's look at the first part. Jesus believes the Bible is God's word. Look at Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 19. This is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of, these least, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So verse 17, Jesus references the law and the prophets. In other places, Jesus say the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms of the writings. And this is Jesus' way of referring to what we call the Old Testament. It's the 39 books in your Bible that sits in your lap right now. Those 39 books is what Jesus is talking about. And we know that he's talking about the written word, don't we? Why? Well, because in verse 18, he, that word iota refers to the smallest letter. The word dot refers to the tiniest stroke that differentiates one letter from another. And so, kids, you can do this. You can draw a lowercase c on your piece of paper. And then if you were to make that lowercase c a lowercase e, all you'd have to do is draw a little line. That's what Jesus is talking about. All the way down to the letters, the smallest stroke of the pen. And what does Jesus say about it? The written word is more enduring than the world, more stable than the biggest of all of God's creations, heavens and earth. Not just the ideas, not just the concepts, but down to the punctuation, the smallest strokes of the pen. Jesus believes that God's word is sure and enduring. And you say, well, Joey, Jesus doesn't say the Bible is God's word in that verse. And I agree with you. So let's press a little deeper. Matthew 19, Jesus is asked by the religious leaders of his day about marriage and divorce and sexual ethics. And how does Jesus respond? Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 through 6. He, that is Jesus, answered them, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. To answer his critics, Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis. And he quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And notice what Jesus says about that passage. Who is the author according to Jesus? It's a statement by who? The one who created them from the beginning. 
And who created them from the beginning? God. Do you see that for Jesus, what Scripture says, God himself says? And because of that, he's not afraid to bring God's word to bear on the cultural issues of his day. In this one passage, we see Jesus believes in the creation account as recorded in Genesis 1. He believes in being created, the goodness of being created male and female. He believes in a real historical Adam and a real historical Eve. He believes in marriage between one biological man and one biological woman. He believes sexual intimacy is only meant to be expressed in that covenant marriage. For Jesus, what Scripture says is right and good and authoritative. For Jesus, what Scripture says, God himself says, so he's not afraid to hold to its truth and to its beauty. We see even more evidence of this in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew 22, Jesus quotes from Psalm 110. And who does Jesus say is the author of Psalm 110? Verse 43 of chapter 22, David in the Spirit. David in the Spirit says or calls or proclaims, So Jesus has no problem referencing a human author as being inspired by God's Holy Spirit to write Scripture. Do you see what Jesus believes about the Bible? Jesus does not believe the Bible at some point becomes God's Word. Jesus does not believe as you read the Bible, you might encounter God's Word. Jesus believes the Bible is God's Holy Spirit-inspired Word written down through the instrument of human authors. For Jesus, Scripture is powerful, decisive, and authoritative because it's nothing less than the words of God himself. So why do we trust the Bible? Because Jesus trusts the Bible. Jesus devoted himself to the Bible in his life and death and resurrection. In his life, what do we know about Jesus? We know one thing about him as a young boy. Where is he? He's at the temple. And what's he doing? He's amazing the teachers with his knowledge of Scripture. Skip forward to the temptation of Christ. He's being assaulted by the devil in fierce temptation. What does Jesus do? Three times he says, It is written. It is written. In his ministry, Jesus draws upon his knowledge of God's word to exhort, to encourage, to rebuke, and to reveal. Jesus is so sure about the perfection and authority and truthfulness of Scripture that when he's arguing with the the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection, he's arguing with them. He makes his case for the resurrection based on the tense of a verb in Matthew 22. God says, I am versus I was. And that little nuance is what Jesus believes settles the debate about the truth of the resurrection, a tense of a verb. In John chapter 10, Jesus is being charged with blasphemy. He references an obscure word out of Psalm 82 verse 6 and then says, Scripture can't be broken. 
Jesus seems to go out of his way to show that he truly believes the Bible is God's true and trustworthy word, every single bit of it. Because here's the thing. Jesus does not just talk about the things that are easy to understand and explain. Jesus references all the crazy stories and miraculous events as if they were really true. If you were to read the Gospels, Jesus at some point talks about Adam and Eve, Abel, Noah and the ark and the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah and the judgment from heaven, Isaac, Jacob, the burning bush, the miraculous giving of manna, the serpent in the wilderness, Moses as the lawgiver, David and Solomon, Queen of Sheba, Elijah, Elisha, Daniel, Naaman, Zechariah, and even Jonah being swallowed by a big fish and spit out three days later. Jesus doesn't talk about scripture the way we might talk about Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter. It's neat, it's fun, and how cool it would be if it were true. It's not the way he treats Scripture. Jesus treats Scripture the way we think about Beethoven or Harriet Tubman. Historical, true, beautiful. It's how Jesus viewed and treated the Bible in his life. What about his death? He's hanging on the cross. Some of his final breaths he used to do what? Quote Psalm 22. Scripture. Surely once he rose from the dead, he would direct his disciples to something else, right? We've already seen that he doesn't. Even after he raises from the dead, Jesus highlights the importance of the written word. And it wasn't just that one incident. If we keep reading Luke chapter 24, Jesus appears to another set of disciples. He invites them to touch him. He then says, hey, let's have a little barbecue and I'll eat with you. And you would think like, okay, that's enough to show that he's back. Like, yep, we're good. I just touched him. We shared some grilled fish together. It was great. Jesus does not stop there. Look at Luke chapter 44, or 24, verse 44. After he appeared to them, then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead. Jesus raises from the dead, and what did he do? He does not say, look at me. He says, read this. That's amazing. That is absolutely amazing that Jesus believes the Bible is God's authoritative word more sure than the greatest personalized religious experience. For Jesus, the Bible is the full and final authority. Do you see, beloved? It's impossible to honor Scripture more deeply or affirm it more completely than Jesus does. And notice I say does, I did not say did. I'm talking present tense. Jesus is alive today and he thinks the same thing about Scripture that he thought in Luke chapter 24. That's what he's telling us. Jesus never questions a single event. He never questions a single miracle. He never questions a historical, single, uh, historical claim. Jesus warned people from taking away from Scripture. Jesus warned people from adding to Scripture. You know the one thing he never did? He never corrected anybody for having a too high view of Scripture. 
for Jesus, the Bible, is the word of God written. And it's not just the 39 books of the Old Testament we're talking about. I'm also including the 27 books of your New Testament. The Bible you have in your lap or on your phone. It is the word of God. I don't have time to do all the evidence for the New Testament. There's a book on our our book stall called Why Trust the Bible. I commend that to you. For now, I'll just say this. In John chapter 16, Jesus promises his disciples that more teaching will come to them through the Holy Spirit. And then as the apostles write the New Testament, they understand that each other, they're writing Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. I'll give you two evidences. One insightful passage is 2 Peter chapter 3. In verse 15, Peter references Paul's writing saying, Our beloved brother also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. And then in verse 16, he says, the false teachers are twisting Paul's writings as they do the other scriptures. Peter puts Paul's writings on the same level of authority as the Old Testament. The apostle Paul does the same thing for Luke's writings, who wrote Luke and all of Acts. In 1 Timothy 8, Paul says, for... For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That's Deuteronomy. And the laborer deserves his wages. That's from the book of Luke. Paul just said Deuteronomy and Luke are equally authoritative because they're equally scripture. They are equally God's word. So here's the point. Jesus unquestionably endorses the Old Testament and authorizes the New. So what does Jesus believe about the Bible? Every word of every verse of every chapter of every book in the Bible stands as God's forever true and trustworthy word that's all authoritative and all sufficient for our lives. It's what he believes. Elevator pitch, we trust the Bible because Jesus trusts the Bible. That's the first part of our answer. Second part, Jesus believes the Bible is God's word about him. Back to our anchor passage, Matthew chapter 5. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus said he did not come to abolish or destroy or set aside anything in the Old Testament. He's not making the Old Testament unimportant or obsolete. He did not come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. And what does he mean by the word fulfill? Well, I think there's at least two things. One, it means he did everything it required. He fulfilled with perfect obedience. Jesus never sinned, never a rebellious action. Even when no one was looking, Jesus was pure and holy. No impure thoughts, no wrong desires, no disordered desires ever. He fulfilled Scripture. Second, it means that he fills it full. In other words, the Old Testament finds its culmination, its completion, its desire to end in Christ. It means that God's steadfast love of covenant love for his people, as it begins to unfold from Genesis and Leviticus and Nahum, is all brought to completion by the life, death, burial, resurrection reign, and soon return of Christ. 
It's what Jesus is showing his disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? That Luke 24 passage. In the beginning, and and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the thing concerning who? Himself. Jesus says, listen, the Bible is about me. He does the same thing later in chapter 24, verse 44. These are the words I spoke to you while I was still you, that everything written about, everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets must be what? Fulfilled. Here's what this means. The Bible is ultimately a book about Jesus. The Bible is one story about one Savior, Jesus Christ, who graciously redeems a rebellious people for God's glory and our joy. This is important, especially for, for, you, for you children as you learn how to read the Bible. Listen up. This is important. The Bible is not a random collection of moral stories. And you try really hard to be like the heroes, and you try really hard not to be like the zeros. That's not what the Bible is. The Bible is not a yearbook. What's the first, you know, some of y'all are getting ready to be finished with school, and you're going to get your yearbook. And what's the first thing you're going to do? Who are you going to look for? You're going to look for yourself. And you're going to think about how good you look or how bad you look. That's not how we treat the Bible. The Bible is not about us and about what we must ultimately do. It's about Jesus and what he's done. As a pastor, I've had the privilege of officiating several weddings for church members over the years. And that means on occasion, I'll find myself kind of in this awkward position where I'll be in someone's home and I see myself in a picture framed on the wall. Because I'm one of the guys that pronounces, you know, husband and wife, you may kiss your bride and they walk down the aisle. Sometimes I get, I try to step out of the way, but sometimes the wedding photographer captures me there in the background. And so there I am, I'm sitting in a home, they have a picture of their happiest day and then I'm just sitting there like, hey. How silly would it be to me to think of that picture was about me? There I am, they love me so much, they put me on their wall. No, the picture is meant to center and focus on the husband and wife on their glorious day. So it is with scripture. Yes, we are there. Yes, we are present, but we are in the background. Christ is the focus. Jesus is the center. And the center is not just that he's a good guy or moral leader. The focus is on Jesus as the all-sufficient sin-atoning Savior. We see that in Luke chapter 24, verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? What does Jesus say is necessary? Suffering. Suffering for sin, being crucified and rising again. And notice, it's, this is necessary. He doesn't say, listen... I'm just one way of salvation. Out of your menu of options, pick which one you want. No, Jesus is saying, it is necessary that I suffer because this is the only way anyone can be saved and be made right with God. We see that again later in Luke 24. Look at verse 46. Jesus said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Why, Jesus? 
that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. The center of Scripture is the crucified and risen Savior. So again, children, as you're in Restoration Kids class, you need to make sure you're telling, you're asking your teachers, how does the lesson point to Jesus? If they're just telling you do this, don't do that, okay. And can you tell me how this points to Jesus? When your kids, when your parents are reading you the Bible, ask them the same question. How does this point to Jesus? Youth, when you're in your youth lessons, you need to make sure those lessons are not just about your behavior, what you should and you shouldn't do. They should be about Christ and what he has done and what he promises to do. And parents, just a a word of warning and encouragement to you. Can I just encourage you to be careful with a lot of the books that are marketed as Christian literature for kids? So much of it is not actually Christian, but moralistic. So just be careful with the books that you read to your kids. If you want a good couple of examples, go down to our bookstall and grab the Jesus Storybook Bible. That'll profit even you adults. It's really good. Or get a copy of the Gospel Storybook, which is what we use for our Restoration Kids class. It'll make sure that it centers on Jesus. Because every story points to him. Here are just a few glimpses. Genesis 3.15 says, The one, one born of a woman will crush the head of Satan, though his heel will be bruised. And we know that Jesus is the offspring of Eve, whose heel was bruised as he was crucified. But he crushed the head of Satan as he paid the penalty for sin and rose again. Exodus tells us how God delivered his people out of slavery and brought them into God's presence through the blood of a Passover lamb. This points to Jesus who brings us through a greater exodus, delivering us from slavery to sin. And he is the final Passover lamb ushering us into the presence of God. Leviticus tells how God provides for his people with a sacrificial system to atone for their sins. Jesus is the end of that system of the lamb who has come to take away the guilt and sin once and for all. We saw in Kings, right? Kings leaves us looking for a forever king from the lineage of David who will rule with perfect justice. Jesus is the son of David who has come to reign eternally and one day he'll right every wrong. Isaiah 53 tells of a suffering servant who will take our griefs and our sorrows, who was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus, as he hung on a rugged cross, took our griefs and sorrows, our iniquities were laid on him. I could go on. Every prediction about the Messiah points to Jesus. Every command was kept by Jesus. Every ceremony prepares for Jesus. Every penalty paid by Jesus. Every promise is yes in Christ. What does Jesus believe about the Bible? It's God's word about him. The promised Savior and resurrected Lord. Do you agree? Do you agree? Most people would not deny the existence of Jesus. History tells us that he lived. And so the question is not so much do you believe in Jesus. The question is do you believe Jesus? Do you think about Jesus the way Jesus thinks about Jesus? So many people want to say Jesus is just a nice guy, a moral leader, a good teacher, trying to inspire people. He's a good example for us. But I don't think Jesus' words will allow us to do that. 
here's the thing. Jesus is not nice and moral if he's not God in the flesh. If Jesus is not good if he's not the only sufficient Savior and all-satisfying Lord. If Jesus is not the only way to know God and get to heaven, he's a liar. So, friend, if you hold that Jesus is just a good teacher, I would just allow you, I would encourage you to, to, to consider your position. Or if you think that Christianity is just one option among many for religious endeavors to get to heaven, again, I would encourage you to consider your position, to think about the words of Jesus. I think you either have to reject him or receive him. The only thing you can't do is mold him into what you want him to be. So I would just encourage you in that. If you want to talk more about that, I'd be happy to talk with you. Uh, Ask the person that you came with. Ask anybody you've seen up front here. Go grab that book, Why Trust the Bible, or Who is Jesus from our bookstall. What about us, beloved? What about us? We ask Jesus, what's your view of the Bible? And he responds, the Bible is God's word about me. And we respond, okay, so what? I think Jesus might go on with Matthew chapter 5, verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19 lays out two ways we could respond. We can either relax God's word and teach others to do the same, or we can be doers of God's word and disciple others to do the same. Uh, people banter over what it means in this passage to be least in the kingdom of heaven, but I, th- I think that misses the point entirely. Uh, Jesus' point is not here. Like, there, there's a minimum level of obedience that, you, that I'm okay with. Like, there's a line, like, I'm okay with that. You know, you can't disobey some of God's word and Jesus be okay with it. Jesus is confronting the religious leaders who tried to divide the law into the least and the greatest. You can see this as an example in Matthew 22. One of the religious leaders comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? See, the religious leaders wanted to divide the law up in the least and great so they could make excuses for obeying some of the word and not other pieces of the word so they could feel better about themselves. That's what they were trying to do. And so Jesus shows up and says, No, you don't get off the hook like that. You are do them or teach them or you don't. And he says the same thing to us. Jesus demands a commitment to do and disciple according to all that's in the Bible. All of life is meant to be brought under the authority of God's word. As I read recently, if you only believe what you like in the Bible, you don't really believe in the Bible, you believe in yourself. If we're not careful, we're tempted to treat the way the Bible the way Thomas Jefferson did. Functionally cutting parts out that we think are unnecessary or removing parts we just don't like. So beloved, where are you tempted to relax the Bible's teaching? Where are you tempted to relax the teaching to make your life a little bit more comfortable? to fit in with that group, to justify your own desires? Where are you tempted to relax the Bible? Are you tempted to relax the Bible when it comes to thinking about sexuality and sexual ethics? To relax your criteria for choosing a dating partner or a spouse? 
to relax the priority of gathering with the church on Sundays. Relax. You go to church. If you happen to be in town, nothing else is happening and there's no game for my kids. I go to church. Relax. Are you tempted to, re- the, to relax the need to serve the church and make disciples? To relax confessing that sin to your spouse or community group member? To relax sharing the gospel with the lost? To relax pursuing peace and offering forgiveness in that broken relationship? To relax about your financial giving and generosity to the church? Relax, relax. To relax discipling your children? There's always tomorrow and next week. they got enough homework and stuff going on. Relax. To relax ever reading the Bible and communing with God. He knows my heart. He knows I need a little extra sleep. He knows I'm busy. He knows that our internship is full. Relax. Don't be so religious. Relax. How do you view God's word? Is it enough for you? Do you think, do you, think you need something more? Do you think you need a personalized religious experience? You think you need to hear God's voice audibly? Do you invite others to help you apply God's word to your heart and life, even when it's hard and uncomfortable? When you're thinking about taking that job or making that move, when you think about buying that house, when you're thinking about organizing your kid's schedule, Are you inviting others to help you sift your decisions through Scripture, not just culture and your comfort? When you're challenged by something Scripture says, you don't like it. Is your instinct to believe that the Bible is broken and needs updating or that you're broken and need greater understanding? These are penetrating questions. I meant them to be. We're being discipled by the culture around us. And Jesus says, will you listen to my word? Will you bring all of life under the authority of God's word? We have work to do. And I also know that God's grace is among us. So in community groups and discipling relationships, I know that you're helping each other in some ways. I've heard, heard you making decisions about retirement plans and TV watching habits, dating, the desire to date at all, how to deal with difficult family members, how to endure in suffering and sin. I know it's happening, and I praise God for it as you speak God's word to one another. I just want to say, may we press on all the more. May we press on and do and disciple each other that we might bring all of our lives under the authority of Scripture. And as we do, we must remember this. We obey not to earn the love of Jesus, but because he loves us and gave himself up for us. That has to be forefront. Obedience to God is not earning from God. It's how we enjoy God. Obedience does not earn, but it is how we enjoy submitting to the authority of God's word is how we treasure Christ. That's how we treasure him. It's where we find freedom and joy. And so as we end, I want to end by adding a bonus to Jesus' answer, which is really no bonus at all. I think it's what he'd say. Jesus, what do you believe about the Bible? 
the Bible is God's word about me for your joy. For your joy. The Bible is God's authoritative word about our all-sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might be filled with soul-saturating joy. That's what it is. Don't believe me? You shouldn't. But you should listen to Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 31. If you abide in my what? If you abide in my word. What does it mean to abide? Bring all of life under the authority of. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you. You want to be free? Come up under the word of God. John 15. These things I have spoken to you. He just talk, he's just talking about his commandments. You can go back and check me in context. It's one of the dangerous things about topical preachings. You can make verses say whatever you want. Go check my work here. Jesus, verse uh, 9, 10, 11. It's talking about the commandments. Commandments. So these things, these commandments I have spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Jesus wants you to be free and full of joy. Isn't that what you want? God's word leads us to the good life. It is not easy, but it is good. Why? Because the Bible leads us to Jesus. In the pages of scripture, the Holy Spirit reminds us that in Christ, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, the repenting of our sins and trusting in him, in Christ we are loved, redeemed, accepted, cherished, lavished with grace. In Christ that we are fully known and truly loved. That though our sin is great, our Savior is greater still. That our God will never leave us or forsake us. That in Christ our souls find the rest that we want but we never thought we could have. And it's almost too good to be true. And so God says, listen, I'm going to kindly write it down for you. Therefore, you don't have to worry about and try to figure this out as you shift your emotions and you change your experiences that's subjective. No, I'm going to give you an objective word that is true and will anchor your soul no matter what you experience or what you feel. Do not let your emotions, do not let your experiences that are subjective be the authority. Let my objective Christ-exalting word be the authority for your life. Rejecting God's word makes us think we are free and full of joy. It feels that way for a moment. But living apart from God's word is like giving a thirsty woman salt water. It might refresh for a second, but it eventually dries you out, shrivels you up, and leads you to death. And Jesus is inviting us to prize the truth and practice the beauty of Scripture that we might be filled with joy and treasure him together. So would you rather, would you rather sip salt water and shrivel up or savor the sweetness of Jesus and be forever satisfied? If you would rather have endless joy, I invite you to treat Scripture like Jesus does, that it's God's word about him for your joy. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, 
I pray that in this moment, you would take the truth of Scripture that points to the treasure of Christ. And you would work. God, we admit sometimes it's hard. It's hard. Remind us that living according to your word is for our good. That you are who you say you are. That you do not change. That your word is sure and enduring. That though we may fade, your word will stand forever. Because it points us to Jesus, the incarnate word. So help us, we pray. Help us. Help us be a church that actively and eagerly disciples one another in the truths of Scripture, that we might treasure Christ together, that we might delight in his supremacy as your messy but redeemed people. Do this, we ask. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen.